There was only one God. And this one God was a creator God. He created the world and he was the God of not only the whole creation, he was the God of all peoples and he was the God of time. He owned time. He controlled time. He guided the course of history. He made the world. He made reality and he remained in charge of it. And yet, clearly, something had gone wrong. The signs were all there. Broken bodies and broken lives and broken systems and broken communities. And the whole thing just needed fixing. The whole thing needed to be mended. It needed to be put right. And the Jewish people believed that they were the key to the rescue of the world. They believed that they were the key to God's solution to make all things new, to put everything right. And the reason they had such an astonishing belief, such what could sound an arrogant belief, the reason they had this belief was because of their history, was because of very particular things that had happened to them. The founding father of the Jewish people was Abraham. And, and the one and only God, the creator, he spoke to Abraham. And he told Abraham that he, Abraham and his children, that they were the ones God had chosen to work through in order to rescue and restore his creation. And when you fast forward in the history of Israel, you see that God gives Abraham's descendants some land. Not any land, but land that was right at the crossroads of a lot of international action, still is today, Palestine. And as Israel moved into that area and they, begun to, they began to build up their society and build up their culture, they move out of a nomadic existence. They begin to look around them at all the nations. And they noticed that these other nations that had really pulled it off and were not nomadic and had stable societies, they all had one thing in common, a king. And they said, hey, if we're going to pull this off, if we're actually going to become a nation that is solid and powerful and stable and that God can use to make all things new, we too need a king. And so they demanded of God a king. And God said, wait a minute, you've gotten this all wrong. A king is not appropriate for you. You know why? Because God said, I'm your king. You don't need a human king. You've got something none of these other nations have. You have me. I am the king you need. But the people of Israel, as is common to humanity, had a better idea. They said, no, 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 no. Really, we can serve you better by having a king. And so God gave them permission to have a king. And they selected Saul. And you know what? God was right and they were wrong. It didn't work out so well. But God let them stay on this path and he gives them another king. He gives them David. And sure enough, as time goes by, over and over, it is Israel's king that leads them into darkness. It's Israel's king that leads them away from God. 
not toward God. And sooner or later, as the years and the centuries roll by, Israel, the solution of the world's problem, becomes as much a part of the problem as every other nation. All of the darkness, all of the evil was right in the middle of Jerusalem, was right in the middle of Israel. Now, eventually, as a result of Israel's incredible brokenness, Israel is conquered. And by the time of Jesus, there have been six centuries, 600 years of conquering. 600 years where Israel has not been the solution, but where Israel has been the armpit of the problem. And not in a good way. The first country to take over Israel was Babylon. The superpower of the world at the time. And then it doesn't stop with Babylon. In fact, one pagan nation after another rolls through the Middle East, taking over. And here you get to Jesus' day, and there is Rome. The latest and perhaps the nastiest in this long sequence of pagan overlords stretching back half a millennia to Babylon and even a millennia before that to Egypt. So for more than a half a millennia, while they're watching one regime after another come and go, like all politicians promising better things, but it ends up they're no better. From one generation to the next, Israel kept believing that one day God would indeed take charge again. That he would take back the kingship they had taken from him. That he would once again reign over Israel as king. And throughout this long history, the poets and the prophets in Israel began to sing songs and preach sermons that the people would sing and hear year after year in the midst of all of their pain and all of their suffering and their captivity in the midst of their exile and in the midst of their enslavement. They began to repeat these poems, turning them into songs and repeat these prophecies, turning them into yearly sermons that God will return to Jerusalem, that God will once again be our king, and the result of God being king will be true justice, proper justice, real equity, the removal of all corruption and oppression. God and God alone will give us what we need, what we long for. He'll take control. He'll sort everything out. And it's going to play in our favor. So Israel was singing these songs week in and week out while watching this dreary procession of corrupt officials and corrupt regimes come and go. Now the high point of the year for Israel, every year for these hundreds and hundreds of years, was one particular religious festival. Passover. Every year, crowds of people, throngs of people would make pilgrimage from wherever they lived all over Israel to Jerusalem at the time of Passover. And walking along, they would sing songs, songs that were old, 
Songs that their poets had come up with many hundreds of years before. And they would hope that now was the time when God would once again do what he had done 1,500 years prior when they were in the same place, when they were in Egypt as slaves, a conquered people, that God would once again deliver them. Now it is this moment, right in the heart of Passover, when Jesus makes his move. It is at this moment when Jesus joins with the crowds around him in Galilee and starts out on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. In the midst of these songs, in the midst of these hopes, in the midst of these dreams, he's traveling with these pilgrim crowds. And when Jesus is walking all this way from Galilee up to Jerusalem, he crests the Mount of Olives... The city of Jerusalem comes into view and he stops. A dramatic pause. And he does something that no pilgrim does on a pilgrimage. He stops walking. And he gets a ride. And in this moment, Jesus suddenly breaks all of the pilgrimage rules. He doesn't go the last two miles on foot. Can you feel this dramatic effect? Jesus, who's walked all the way from Galilee, surely doesn't need a ride at this point. I mean, he's walked a lot of miles. He's not tuckered out. Not to mention this is the only moment in all of the Gospels when Jesus is traveling on land and he doesn't go by foot. The only moment. This is a deliberate, dramatic, symbolic gesture. And the crowds, they were around Jesus and they're on their way to this feast. They immediately put two and two together because they were just singing about this. Remember, they had been singing these songs of hope. And so suddenly when Jesus stops, this healer, this teacher... This man capable of remarkable miracles who's been talking about what? The kingdom. The kingdom of God. When he stops and sends his two disciples to go and get a donkey and a colt. He is literally picking one of the songs they've been singing and acting it out. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, how do the crowds respond? Well, they start singing the songs, the royal songs, the songs that they sang when their kings were enthroned. Look at Matthew 21 verse 9. And the crowds that went before him were shouting and and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's it. Hosanna. It means God save us. It means praise God. He's finally saving us. The moment has finally arrived. So the crowds not only sing. Look what else it says. Look at verse 8. It tells us that the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. They remembered that when one of their most famous kings of old, Jehu, that when he was proclaimed king in defiance 
of a corrupt king. That his followers threw their cloaks on the ground for him to walk on as an expression of their loyalty. It's in 2 Kings chapter 9. So they reenact that moment. And that's not all. Look at verse 8 again. It goes on to say, Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now again, the Middle East is a place of long memory. And it has always been that way. And in the long folk memory of the Jewish people, stories were still being told about the famous Judas Maccabeus, who 200 years before this had marched in Jerusalem from the same mountain after conquering the pagan armies that had oppressed Israel. And how did the the delivered Israelites respond? They cut palm branches and waved them. So in this moment of explosive hope, they said, finally, it's here again. They reached back into their old stories because Jesus provoked that. He provoked it when he got to the top of the Mount of Olives and got onto a donkey. They suddenly put two and two together and they began to reenact all of these stories of deliverance. They threw their cloaks on the ground like they did for Jehu. They cut palm branches like they did for Judas Maccabeus. And these songs and the cloaks and the palms, they said it's here. You see, Jesus was doing something So that every historian who claimed that Jesus never claimed to be king would fall on their face. He made a gesture that was far louder than words. Jesus in this moment was taking the long history of Israel and dragging it into Jerusalem with him. And actuating it and saying it is here. The climax of all of the stories is here. Now, that's the fun part. But there's something else going on here. Look on the front of your worship guide. Do you see the child up in the tree cutting down branches? Do you see the, the cloaks at the feet and the palm branches at the feet? Do you see how Jesus is sitting on the horse? What would we call that today? Side saddle. Who sits side saddle? Women. This comes out of Eastern Orthodox iconography, and it's their way of capturing that he came in humility. Not like Alexander the Great, three centuries before this, who rode into Jerusalem astride a mighty stallion. But here is Jesus, not triumphantly striding in, but humbly. But the greatest point of his humility is on the look on his face. Do you see it? It doesn't look like someone in triumph. What does it look like? What does the look on his face look like? Does it look like he's filled with joy? No. No, it's not at all. It's not a joyful look. It's a sad look. Now, in the record of this event that Luke recorded in his gospel, in Luke 19, verse 41, here's what it says. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, 
Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, the dominant note of the triumphal entry, it's the exciting Shouts of the crowd. But there is an ominous, dark strain running through the whole account. Something is not right. Yes, the crowds get it. He is declaring for the first time openly his kingship. Sort of. They sort of get it. But notice how our story ends. Look at chapter, Matthew 21, verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was, anybody following along in their Bible, what? Stirred up. That's a pansy translation. In Greek, it's actually the word we get our word quake, earthquake from. It's, it's the Greek word that we get our word seismic from. And the whole city, literal translation, was quaked. Those of you who've been following along with us for the last few months, when was the last time in Matthew's gospel, Jerusalem was troubled? It was the last time the kingship of Jesus was pronounced in Jerusalem. When was that? Anybody remember? At his birth. It says in Matthew 2, the wise men came from the east and said to King Herod, where is the one that has been born king of the Jews? And it says right after that, all of Jerusalem was troubled. But here, it's ratcheted up a notch. That's a serious word, Jerusalem troubled. But here it says all of Jerusalem quakes. He's not a baby anymore. And it's not some foreigners declaring his kingship. It is Jesus himself declaring his kingship. And this is just the beginning. In fact, we heard the rest of the story read this morning. And if you notice in chapter 26 and chapter 27, which we didn't quite get to, we saw that there's another time Jerusalem quakes. Same word used the next time. Did anybody get it? When is there next a quake in Jerusalem? At his crucifixion. And then there's again a quake in Jerusalem. At his resurrection. The kingship of Jesus is not good for Jerusalem. They think it is. You see, Israel was confused. They had confused their own dreams with God's plans. They had projected their desires onto God. They thought Jesus would lead them to pick up weapons like Judas Maccabeus and conquer their enemy with the sword. They thought that Jesus was going to once again establish the nation of Israel as an independent nation of power. And when Jesus refused to go that route, they turned on him. And they struck him down. So with their cloaks and their palm branches and their songs, they are really saying that Jesus was going to be the sort of king they wanted. But Jesus knows. 
And Matthew's told us that it's not that simple. We know that he's come to Jerusalem not to be enthroned like Judas Maccabeus, but to be killed. The meaning Jesus attaches to this so-called triumphal entry is quite different from the meaning they're wanting to see. Remember the story of Jehu I mentioned earlier? This king that as he rode into Jerusalem, they cut palm branches for him. They were right. They just didn't think deep enough into the story. Because you know what Jehu did once he was made king? You know where he rode on those palm branches? Straight to the temple. And he destroyed the corrupt leadership of Jerusalem. He executes Jezebel. Where does Jesus in the very next story go straight to? The temple. Casting out the money changers. There's another story from 2 Samuel chapter 5 where the glory army of the Lord is described in a very strange way. At the moment you read it historically, you think it's just a historian using poetic language. But suddenly in this moment of Jesus' entry, we discover that history has become prophecy. Listen now; how it describes the glory army of the Lord. When you hear the sound of the march in the tops of the trees, rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down his enemies. You see, Israel was so far off base. Israel, the solution, had become warp and woof, the problem. And here indeed was her king. But he was coming to Israel in order to confront her with her sins. God will not ever be your mascot. He will never allow himself to be made into our own image. God is wild. We cannot control him. We cannot own him. We cannot push him into our agenda. Here in his triumphal entry, can you see Jesus? Can you see it in your mind? We just did it. Can you see it? He is surrounded by people holding up branches that they have cut from the trees. They are surrounding Jesus, waving. Can you see that the actual physical action is an interpretation of Scripture? Where else have we seen God himself walking Among the trees. In the garden. You see, we've seen this moment before. History begins in a grove of trees. History begins in a grove of trees that Adam is called to cultivate. Whose fruits Adam is invited to eat. But Adam rebelled. 
So God comes to Adam. It says very clearly, in the midst of the garden, in the midst of the trees. And what does he do when he comes to Adam in his rebellion? He calls him to account. See, Israel missed it. Her king was coming to her first as her judge. Here was her king, her creator, coming to Israel, calling her to account. Here is Jesus, the judge. And so, like I said, it is no surprise that in the very next story, after the triumphal entry, Jesus goes straight to the temple to toss around the tables of the money changers and to cast Israel out of her garden. The crowds around Jesus wanted a prophet, but this prophet would tell them that their city was under God's imminent judgment. And in 30 or so years later, sure enough, Rome marches in and there is not a stone left standing. Rome does what Rome does best, obliterates Jerusalem, raises it to the ground. Israel wanted to be rescued from evil and oppression. But Jesus was going to rescue Israel from evil in its full depths. Not just the surface evil of Roman occupation and the exploitation of the rich. The bad news is that the crowds, they're going to turn on Jesus and strike out at him and cut him down. But the good news is that their disappointment Even though it turns cruel, God will use it to bring their salvation and our salvation. Now, I think here is what we need to hear from God in Scripture this morning. Would you open your hearts to this? Would you open your ears to this? Because we all have our own aspirations. You want to get a degree. You want to get a job. You want to earn some money. You want to maybe get married. Fine. But, but the, the, the trick here is how do we prevent our own aspirations from becoming merely self-centered? How do we not fall into Israel's trap? How do we do it? How do we get out of these habits of taking our dreams and foisting them onto God and making God into a lackey, making God into a mascot, making God into divine approval of our own agendas? It's so easy, isn't it, to confuse our desires for God's desires. So easy to make God into our own image, so easy to call out to God for our will. To be done. So easy to invoke God to back up our own ambitions. So, as we walk through Holy Week, let's pray. Let's ask God, what do you want from me? Help me to recognize you as the gravitational center of my life. Maybe this is a week to stop praying for God to bless your endeavors. And maybe this is a week to push pause. And to say, God, 
How can I revolve, orbit my whole life? around? How can Christ become the center of my life? What do you want from me, God? Help me to yield my aspirations to yours. And he will. God works in our lives. But learn from Israel. It is often in the ways we least expect it. God could not be controlled by Israel and God cannot be controlled by us. Often, we find that that hurricane of love that we call God blows in from fresh angles and disrupts all of our plans. The pregnancy comes at the wrong time. The job loss comes at the worst time. The disease could not have picked a worse family. The lust could not have flowered into outright adultery at a more terrible time. God blows in as this hurricane and he sweeps, he sweeps our dreams away. He shatters them. And as we try to follow Jesus in faith and hope and love, do not be surprised that if in this process there are these moments when it feels as though you're being sucked down to the depths, that you're 500 miles from shore, that the waves are 100 feet high, and that you're weeping, For the dream that has turned to ashes. That you're broken over the kingdom that will not be. And in those moments, would you open yourself to God? Would you open up your heart and your mind to God in the midst of all of your brokenness? When the hurricane of God's judgment has fallen on you, when your sins have fully bloomed and it is wrecking your life, when your body itself has turned against you, in those moments, if you would open your heart to God, you'll hear him. You'll hear his voice. And if you will let God, he will show you a way forward. This is how God so frequently works. The deepest work that God has done in my life has been in the moments where my sin was at its worst. It's been in the moments where I had a breakdown. And all was darkness. And it felt like this God of love was a hurricane. And everything in my life was washed away. 
And like Israel, and like so many before, it is in those moments when we open ourselves to God that our deliverer comes. And we discover his intention and his dreams and his aspirations. Who knows what could happen if this week one of us, 10 of us, 50 of us, were to go through this holy week humbly praying for God to blow into our personal lives, our personal agendas, our personal dreams. So that we could share in the sufferings of the Messiah and come through them to the new life that he gives. Let's pray.